So for the people who have uh, just arrived today, welcome. There are, you probably noticed that oh, something like four or five, maybe six people disappeared today and six new people reappeared. For all are not looking up, everybody notices who comes and goes and when people are new. <laughs> so welcome and uh, I hope your stay here is wonderful. And I, I thought about what to talk about, especially uh, that there are new people who have just come. And so what I want to start with, what I want to talk about really, is uh, I want to talk about mindfulness practice and Brahma-vihara practice, metta practice and all its permutations that we've begun practicing from the very beginning and talked about metta and karuna, compassion and Today I talked about uh, all four of the Brahma-viharas, compassion and altruistic joy and equanimity, being part of, uh, in my view anyway, one a whole manifestation of clarity and wisdom that presents itself in different tonalities given different situations. And I guess I thought when I began thinking about what I wanted to talk about tonight, I feel like um, the, the topic that seems most compelling to me these days, I love to talk about it, is my sense that mindfulness practice is not actually different from Brahma-vihara practice. In form, it's different. And so people will say things like, oh, phew, I don't have to do those phrases anymore. I can just rest here with the breath, finally. Or people will say, oh, phew, finally I have phrases to anchor my attention on. I keep getting lost in the breath or I can't find the breath. What a relief to have these phrases. So in fact, the techniques that we teach that have to do with mindfulness and the manifestations of loving kindness are different. But in fact, the, the, the point of both of them is the same. They are both aiming at the cultivation of wisdom and through the cultivation, the natural expression of goodwill as an expression of understanding what is true about this life and this world, and this mind. I think they're all attention practices. I think they're all kinds of, they're all concentration practices. There's a way in which I think that a moment of genuine mindfulness where the mind meets a moment, the attention meets a moment without coercing it in any way, without needing it to be the least bit different, meets it with a steady understanding of the fullness of its import, what's happening there, and meets it with a steady, even friendly attention. I remember James called it the other day a kindly curious, investigative attention. The mind that does that smoothly, when the mind does that, I think it's the most compassionate movement that the mind can make to meet the moment. Compassionate for my mind, when my mind meets the moment kindly, it doesn't make me problems, I don't suffer from it. Moments of mindfulness is completely compassionate. And a moment of compassion depends on complete mindful attention. What's happening? what's happening out there, what's happening in me in response to it. 
In the text, it's a moment of compassion is described as the quivering of the heart in response to what's out there, or actually in here as well, because we could be feeling compassion for ourselves. But for that, you need a really full and awake attention. There's a line of uh, description that I read uh, earlier today. Uh, it's just a, a, a really wonderful way to say it. And because I uh, like so much the way Nyanapanika Tara, who um, uh, was a very, very wonderful teacher in the Theravada tradition, who died uh, sometime in the 1990s, wrote beautifully about the understanding of, uh, of everything, and especially wrote a very beautiful piece on the understanding of the sublime states, the Brahma Viharas. And he said, the ultimate aim of uh, practicing these Brahma Viharas, of attaining these states of goodwill and compassion, is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for the liberating insight into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. That's a great sentence because it says everything about everything, that the point of them is to be able to really attain the full wisdom. We, we often say about mindfulness practice that the point of it is to really understand deeply the truths, the characteristics of experience, the truths about life, that all experiences are impermanent, that uh, all states are liable to suffering, minds are liable to suffering, that everything is unsubstantial, that everything, there is no thing other than change. So the ultimate aim of these Brahma-Vihara states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for the liberating insight to make that strength that can actually see and understand and get it deeply that everything is insubstantial and liable to suffering. The understanding that, that life is, uh, however you want to understand that liable to suffering, precarious, frail, uh, changing, uh, that you can't depend on how things are, we are all, all of us really um, liable to loss and grief at any time. Now, I don't think it's about Buddhism being a, uh, a gloomy religion. I, I, I don't have the sense at all that it means that every moment is dreadful. There is beauty. No. <laughs> I, I once was teaching this many, many years ago. I was teaching at Dominican College. I was teaching young children, well, 19-year-old young adults who had just finished going to school in Marin County and grown up largely in Catholic intact families in between wars. It was a, uh, and, and they hadn't in their lives known much suffering. And here they came and I was teaching them Buddhism, introduction to Buddhism, and here I come with the uh, uh, life is suffering and, the, and the, starting from there. And they looked at me so puzzled um, it was hard for them to really understand. Somebody, one of them asked me, do, do Buddhists have birthday parties? 
I said, they do, and they laugh, and they you know, rejoice at birth. It's not about there is no beauty, and there is no awe and wonder. Somebody asked that the other day, isn't there beauty? Of course there's beauty and awe and wonder, and the spectacularity of we can know exactly where the sun will rise tomorrow, and how big the moon is, if we could see it through the rain, and, uh, and that the, the, the daffodils are once again coming up, uh, just on schedule, which I write to all my friends in the Midwest at this point to write back and say, don't tell me that. There are lots of amazing things in life, and at any moment, it's subject to change and with subject of being startled and in some ways uh, subject to loss. There's a poignancy about that that's tremendous. No matter how much we know about it, that we're subject to loss, we never really know about it. My, uh, uh, my friend Alan Liu, who was the rabbi at a large congregation in San Francisco, died two weeks ago. He was in his early 60s. He had had heart trouble, so it wasn't completely surprising. But he was well, and he'd been teaching the night before and teaching that very morning, and suddenly he died. And at his um, funeral, Norman Fisher, who many of you know is a Zen teacher in this county and a wonderful um, poet and writer and thinker, Norman was the last of the people to talk about Alan at his funeral. And uh, he ended, uh, he had been Norman's very close friend for 40 years. They'd been the closest of buddies. Um, and uh, he talked through his eulogy about, um, you know, everybody knows about grief and loss, and the, but how sad he was about Alan being gone. And when he ended, he said, um, he said, when Alan and I talked together, he always had the last word. So I'm going to give him the last word. I'm going to end by using the title of one of his books. That this is real, and we are all absolutely unprepared. It's really, you know, we think about things. We talk about old age, sickness, and death. When I started my Dharma practice 35 years ago, I talked about old age, sickness, and death. It seemed a very remote thing that never happened to anybody. And it's gotten incredibly not remote anymore <laughs> in a very apparently uh, existentially short period of time. I think we're all quite surprised. And it's actually remarkable, and I feel very lucky to have made it so that I'm here and teaching tonight. Because you never know, really. Because normally when I teach that, I teach old age, sickness, and death, if you're lucky enough to come to the old age, but sometimes before that, you don't know. So it's an interesting thing because I read in the newspaper the other day that there's been, there are always phases in books. There are a lot of books about this and then there are a lot of books about that. There been a lot of books about happiness recently in the last few years. Happiness is in, in psychology and in Dharma. And this is about that there are now a lot of books about death and dying suddenly and preparing for death because the boomer generation, who are largely the people buying books and reading them, are now, all of a sudden, going on Social Security, so they're a little older. 
And the next thing they have to think about is getting, and, but the books are not, uh, this, according to this article, so much about coming to terms with how do you feel in your life at this point and is it meaningful? Actually, some of the books suggest that it wasn't quite meaningful enough because there are a number of books that are being called bucket books. They are buckets of things. 1,000 places to see before you die. 1,000 movies that you shouldn't miss before you die. 1,000 books that you should read before you die. So all of a sudden, it, it inspires you think, well, all right, you're going you're gonna to have to... Uh, I remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's last book, I think, was called Death, the Final Stage of Growth. And I remember thinking about that. I read it. It was a long time ago, and I remember. And she was talking about that period of re really reckoning that your death is immediately approaching and the possibility of growth. And I remember feeling disappointed. I thought, you know, I'd like to have a break, you know. At least in the last minute, you don't have to be learning and growing. You could just, <laughs> but, uh, so that, but, but, you know, we could slide into the home plate or something, but no, final stage. But according to all these new books, there's a thousand things that you should go to or see or chronicle before you die thereby firing up lust, you know, if one of the things that you want to do is overcome sense desire by the time you finish, it's firing it up. So on that, you know, I, I was thinking about that because I was, there were two things that happened that you, uh, on the day that I, two days that I was away. Friday afternoon, when I left here, I stopped in a, uh, so I want to tell you two stories. The first is I stopped in a parking lot of a, of a shopping center to go into a supermarket and do some shopping. And as I was getting back in my car, I saw somebody had a really cute looking car. I don't remember what it was, but it was a really cute looking jazzy car. And uh, it had a license plate that said, me want. <laughs> so I, I thought about that. First of all, I thought it's really interesting. You know, if I were a person subject to craving, I don't know if I'd write it on my license plate for all the world to see, especially if I had a really luxurious kind of a fancy car. But I thought it was also interesting that it didn't say I want, it said me want, which is about what a two-year-old says, you know? <laughs> me want that cookie, me want that, me want that, me want that. Isn't it? You know, that kind of, you know, if you ever knew a two-year-old, that's what they say, and they have to learn the proper grammar, me want. And I thought, well, maybe they wrote it that way because they realized that that part of us that's constantly wanting, 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 is in some ways a, uh, a child part that wants, you know, that in that kind of imperative way, me want it. And I was thinking about the fact that we all want, and we always want. I mean, it's in the nature of being a human being that uh, we have regularly recurring, we want to eat at certain times, we want to lie down. We have regular recurring, recurring body needs that, uh, if we're lucky, there aren't imperatives because we have enough to eat and time to lie down in a warm place to live and a hot bath. And so there are lots of things that we feel like having that we can have and that are part of the normal uh, rising in the cycles of... Uh, uh, the body needing to be taken care of. We also want company. We want people to touch us. We want people to look at us. It's a, a hierarchy of wants, really. 
I think that's a really the important thing for us to think about as we do this work together is the difference between a want and a need, what's an imperative, or what do we, you know, sometimes we think I really need this, or I can't be happy unless I have this. I need to have this in order to be happy. I think about the, the, uh, uh, the second line of the 23rd Psalm. I may have mentioned it the other day. It was taken just a couple of years ago. I've known it all my life that I remember since grade school, and we all recited it in assembly. But I remember, uh, I always assumed that uh, I shall not want, uh, uh, you leadeth, beside me, beside, leadeth me beside the still waters. And so it was that uh, I, the person, the psalmist, uh, is thanking God for being, having a safe place to lie down and enough to eat and being taken care of, being blessed. And I think that maybe all of those things, it was a mistake for me to think I shall not want because you'll do all those things for me. But really what would be the best thing for us is to have a mind state that didn't want, period, that they could end after the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, in the sense of the license plate wants, in the sense of it's an imperative. I am driven around by want. I think sometimes I think about the... Uh, I want in the, in the present, they say, if only, you may have felt that here, if only I had brought more, brought more changes of clothing, I'd feel better, or more, uh, a better shawl, a better zafu, a better this, a better that, more power bars to supplement what I'm eating here. <laughs> Something would make me feel better. Or only if I went home, if I only had a better job or a better colleagues to work with or a better relationship or a better apartment or I lived in a better climate, then I'd be happy. Um, you know, and it's not to say that imagining yourself a better, a, a life that's more comfortable than the one you have through making of reasonable choices is a bad thing to do. It's a, I mean, it's one of the things that gets us all to where we are, the, the making of choices. And, uh, the mind is endlessly curious about what could be different and better. It's not a, that's not a bad thing to, to, to think about. It's the sense that I won't be happy until. If I had that, then I'd be happy. If I had this, I'd be happy. Or sometimes the, the thought about the past, if only I had made X choice instead of Y, then I would have really been in a better position now. I'd be happier now. If only I had chosen this line of work, chosen that person to be in relationship to, instead of the one that I chose, actually. But whatever it is, they're all, first of all, that's, that's so uh, fruitless a line of thinking because, first of all, you didn't choose that. You chose X instead of Y, but it's a while ago, so you can't unchoose it. We don't get to go back and make the choice again. And second of all, we really never know how it would have been if we would have chosen X instead of Y. We'd have a different life, is that all we know. But how it would have been different, we never know. So, and so to realize that really we make the best judgments that we can, but past that, it's out of our control, really. Don't know. Don't know.
I think I told you the story of uh, my friend who thought, and uh, her partner who thought they had done such a wonderful thing because their plane was canceled and they rushed to get on another plane to get to their destination on the same day that they got there. And en route, she contracted a virus because when she got to the end of the trip, the two days later she was quite sick and now it's many years later. And she has one of those retroviruses that is so hard to treat. And uh, her doctors think, you probably caught it on that long flight from somebody on that flight. You think if they would have missed the plane or stayed where they were, taken their original flight and arrived a day later, but they felt at the time so great about we'll be in this, we'll be in Europe a day earlier. We never know when we make a decision what's going to happen. And to realize that that's not very true for us, it's true for everybody else. It also could also turn out to be fabulous. Every time we turn left instead of turning right, really, we are making a decision for the rest of our life. Often I think we think there's the, there are those big decisions that we make. Should I go to dental school or go to the conservatory and become a flutist? Or, you know, all right, that's a big difference. But we don't think about turning left or right. But you can turn left or right and be in an accident or get lost or meet somebody. You don't know. And to be able to say, this is an amazing life, you know. We keep thinking we're making choices. And more or less, on a gross way, we're making choices. But we're not in charge of the outcome of those choices. We really don't know. And we not only want things, I want this, I want that, if only I could have that. We want to be rid of things. When things are unpleasant, we want them to leave. And sometimes you can change your situation, have another situation. And sometimes you can't. Got a very thoughtful question from a person who's on this retreat today, who said, uh, I don't actually, would you clarify this point about, you said we are the author of our own suffering, but also that we just need to accept things just as they are. Ourselves or our non-selves, whichever they are, have to accept things just as they are right now. And then goes on actually to answer her own question very well. Uh, it's not about uh, being a passive recipient of anything that happens in life, okay, this, okay, that, but being an engaged participant in the events of one's life. And sometimes things happen that we can change. We have some, some amount of power in. And sometimes we can move in another direction. Sometimes, especially when we take ill with something that can't be changed. We can't. That's when we have to accept things. Sometimes when something doesn't come through for us, not only the taking ill, something doesn't come through for us. We don't get the job we don't want. We don't get the partner we want. Partner we want wants somebody else. We are heartbroken lots of times to be able to say, I would have wanted that other thing, but I don't have it. I would have wanted great health. I would have wanted that partner. I would have wanted that job, but I didn't get it. And how to really be able to be with that. 
I think for me, it's, it's really the, the central issue. I would have wanted other, but I, this is what I've got. And to be able not to lament it, to be able in wisdom, not because the mind says, okay, have it your way, fate, or whatever it is, not a capitulation, but really an understanding that things unfold the way they do because of such an extraordinary, complex web of karma going back and forth, going back in time forever and ever and as wide as the whole world. And that this moment that comes up is a completely lawful moment. This event that happens is the lawful event that happens at the end of a very long and complex web of karma. How to know, actually, that we would have wanted other and, and, and not have the mind tie itself in a knot about it. When I was thinking about this this afternoon, I had a memory that I haven't thought about in a long time. Um, my mother uh, had uh, uh, frail health. She had uh, defective heart valves from having had uh, rheumatic fever as a child in the days before they had antibiotics. And so she, um, she could never run or do anything athletic in the time that I knew her. And uh, she was often out of breath. She was a very uh, vivacious and lively woman with a tremendous mind and a good wit. And um, I was standing with her, uh, looking out the window. I probably was 10 or 11 years old. And we were looking out the window. And a woman, probably my mother's age, because I remember it was a grown-up woman as opposed to a child, was walking along the sidewalk just across the street from our house. And she was walking at a brisk pace. And uh, my mother said to me, see that woman? Uh, and it was not, a, a, it was not, I, I'm trying to convey it to you, it was not that she begrudged the woman her health. She said, you see that woman? That woman is walking along in my body. She said, I feel like that woman, but I don't have that body. But she has a body I'm supposed to have. And I completely understood at that moment that it wasn't that she wished that woman any less of a body, but that the sprightliness in that woman's step was what she felt went along with her and her mood and her personality, not with her body, alas, because I remembered it. I was very struck by both her saying that, quite in a spontaneous thing, not to make me feel bad, just was her take on the moment. I suppose now that I remembered it today, it was because I was trying to think of an example of I would have wanted other, but this is what I got. And that was what came out of my, into my mind. I've often told stories about other people who had to make that kind of adjustment. I actually thought she was a tremendously wise woman. Just as I thought about that, I thought of another a story with my mother. So I thought, well, I'm telling you about my mother. It couldn't have been much later, because I was probably 10 or 11 when that happened. But I remember a day, uh, I suppose I was an adolescent, and uh, having a day of extreme moods uh, that 13-year-old adolescent girls are prone to. 
I remember, I, I remember particularly as a well-behaved child, by and large, I come from mild-mannered parents and I was an only child, but I was having a day of moods and I remember slamming quite a few doors and uh, I remember going into one room or leaving, leaving a room with my mother and uh, slamming the door. And uh, when I emerged, she said quite in a plain voice, she said, you know, Sylvia, this is the only day you're going to have for today. This is the only time you're going to have today. And I thought, whoa. Because I actually got that, you know. It wasn't in a bad way. It's just a piece of information. Today is the only day that you get to have today. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's now 13 to 72 is 60 years. I can hear it. And I think it shaped my life. Uh, that we have the option in any moment to lament and bewail and bemoan or make the best of it in some way. So I wanted to tell you that those stories because they all came from the uh, I need and I want, me want, me want. And I, I think that uh, so much of practice is learning to find that the, what we think is an imperative actually isn't an imperative. That really what the Buddha talked about in terms of suffering, because he clearly differentiated between pain, which is inevitable in life, and suffering, which is the mind tying itself in a knot about some pain. It's the mind that has the imperative in it that this pain has to go, this pain of longing, this pain of aversion, this pain of whatever it is, it shouldn't be here. And I think that part of the work of practice as we do it together is the idea it shouldn't be here is, uh, is an idea that comes out of ignorance that really the, 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 the point that I hoped I was making before about karma is if it's here, it doesn't make any sense to say this shouldn't be happening now. It is happening now. And it's happening for myriad, myriad, myriad reasons. And every day there are such things that happen. Planes that crash or planes that land successfully in the Hudson or uh, accidents that people are involved in and accidents that people miss. I often think um, about how many accidents I wasn't in today that happened all over the world. <laughs> and when you think about it, you sometimes come upon an accident that uh, where the, uh, the emergency vehicles are there or they've just arrived. You go down the highway and you think, whoa, if I would have been here 15 minutes ago, I could have been in this crash or 10 minutes ago. But then, and I could have, you know, but then I realized that uh, I missed that crash because I came 15 minutes later and all the other crashes in the world, I'm 15 minutes or two miles or 10 miles or 30 miles or across the globe, but I'm just not in the place where that crash is happening at that day. But other people were, people who were minding their own business and driving carefully or going home from somewhere or on their way to somewhere. You, just, you don't know. You just don't know. 
And they weren't the quote-unquote cause of it. They just happened to be there at the one time that it happened. And I think about karma as being completely non-personal. I don't think about it as just for that, you got this. The just for that is you happened to be on the highway at that time, that some cars came out of control and hit each other, but not in a personal way. And when I realized that, I realized that my mind has two possibilities. It can either get totally frightened, oh, I can't go anyplace, I have to be home, you never know, you know, but there's no place really that's safe from bodily injury. Uh, and besides, you'd miss a life if you never went anywhere. I think what it, the other place for it to go, one is oh, be frightened of life, and the other one is to totally do the life. Love as much as you can, as many people as you can, as fast as you can, not waste any days being estranged from people, because the estranged from people means that there's a wall in your own mind of estrangement. You know, we've been doing this Brahma Vihara practice now for two weeks, and I'm hopeful that when you are thinking about or feeling yourself as part of the community of beings in the world, and wishing well to them in an unreserved way. You've discovered how pleasant that is. I don't think that there's anything more pleasant than to be able to say wholeheartedly, out of wisdom, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And again, I think that, uh, that there are there are ways to think about how do we come here and pay attention to our thoughts and our feelings and the changes that we go through day after day and relate them to other people. I think there are moments in which, in my own experience here and not on retreat, where my mind ties itself in a knot about something or other. And I suffer not only about the something or other, but about the not as well. And that when my mind relaxes, I realize everybody's got this. Everybody's got stuff. And everybody has the tendency of the mind to fight with the stuff. So I'll tell you another story of what happened in the two days. So I shopped in the supermarket and I went home. and. Uh, Last night, it's, it's, a, it's a somewhat dear story. My husband said that, look, I got these two CDs, these two videos from uh, Netflix, special for you. Uh, I, I, I knew you'd be home this Valentine's Day, and uh, I thought we'd watch the, you know, these two movies. One of them, the first one, was a, he said a few weeks ago you mentioned, the, it's an old film, it's actually 1973, it's uh, Antonio Jodorowsky, and it's a very strange film. It's uh, meant to be a film about enlightenment. And I first saw it in 1973. And I didn't actually get it because it's so weird and strange and full of uh, uh, arcane symbolism. I think if I knew more about Gurdjieff and his teaching, I would have understood it more. But it's got some quite shocking imagery. 
But I remember one of my teachers at that time suggesting that I go see it, that the whole class go to see it. And we all went to see it and were really uh, quite surprised. And it's got a very assaultive imagery. Please don't necessarily feel you need to see it anytime soon after you leave this retreat. Um, and I think what it was meant to show is how easily the mind is startled and um, how many things we don't take in our, so to speak, stride. I'm not actually sure we should take them in our, so to speak, stride. They're that shocking and assaultive. But anyway, we had had a conversation some weeks ago and uh, that came up and he said, oh, you know, I, I said I'd probably understand it now. I really didn't understand it 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Now I'd probably understand it. So he ordered that. So he put it on, and it was on at one minute, and the image was so shocking. And you know, here I've been on retreat with you for two weeks, and <laughs> was on retreat for most of January. It doesn't matter if you sit over there or over here. We're both we're all sitting a lot. Mine gets very quiet. The film is on about one minute. It's a shocking image, and I actually feel felt it like a jolt. I said, "No, turn it off." <laughs> and, here he said, I'm so sorry, I was, it was a big mistake. Please forgive me, I'm taking this out of the machine. He said, you're going to really like this other film. <laughs> this other film, this other film, Meryl Streep is in it. Oh, good, I like Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, it's a, it's a film about five sisters, and, and he read me what it says, you know, on Netflix, it always says what it's about. It's a story about five sisters in Ireland, uh, beautiful countryside views, the five sisters. In 1936, I should have known already 1936, <laughs> stay away from this film, it's a bad time in history. <laughs> Think bad things are going to happen. Uh, and the five sisters who are living together and raising the, the uh, child of one of the sisters conceived out of marriage, outside of marriage. So the five sisters in this one Ten-year-old boy, and that's gonna, and it's gonna be a lovely movie. It says about their love for each other. So then it starts, and the first scene is the five sisters are going down to the go over the over the country road in Ireland. Really, so far so good, beautiful vista, and they go into town to meet the bus that's bringing back their brother. Uh, who has been a uh, missionary priest in Africa for 25 years, and they haven't seen since 25 years. So here comes the bus coming around the corner, and I burst out crying. Nothing had happened. The bus hadn't even arrived. I said, what's happening to you? I said, well, I'm so upset that, you know, it's, it's just a story. I said, but it's a story about five people who are united with a brother that they haven't seen in 25 years. That's so terrible. Anyway, he said, it's not a good day for movies for you. So, so, uh, so uh, partly, you know, I thought about telling you that not to frighten you about going home, but to make another point. <laughs> Seriously, I'll make that point before you go home about go home slowly and don't watch anything for a while. <laughs> Forget movies. Forget movies, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about one more movie because I'm gonna read you a poem. I'm gonna read you a poem, but that first I'm gonna tell you the point, so you'll see why I'm reading you this poem. People often in the middle of retreat, at the end of a retreat, will say to me, I'm afraid to go home. 
because I feel like in this time here, I've become too vulnerable. Because you all do. You sit here and everything in your whole life recycles and recycles and recycles and recycles. And nothing comes in to buffer it. And we become vulnerable to our own stories, to other people's stories. The thing is that when people say that, I'm afraid that I'm too vulnerable. I like to say to them, I think there's no such thing as too vulnerable. You know, and I, immediately we can talk about how hard it is to go into an unbuffered world. But in the, really what I mean as a larger concept, I think it would be a great thing if the whole world became too vulnerable to pain and to the, too able to see pain happening around them. I think if the whole world did that, they'd stop killing each other and themselves. People would take good care of themselves. People would stop, take good care of each other. They'd stop abusing their own bodies or other people's bodies. They would be broken up. They would cry before the bus comes around the corner, really. That too vulnerable would be great. We'd all lower our voices and take care of each other. So here's the poem about that. And it is about a movie, but it's a good poem. It's out of, I took it out of The New Yorker. It's called A Leak Somewhere. No toy in a bathtub, the Titanic, but on our 21-inch screen, it's faintly laughable as Barbara Stanwyck and her daughter in their lifeboat gasp at the sight of the great vessel sliding into the North Atlantic like a spoon. Yet only faintly laughable when the ship blows up with Stanwyck's son and husband on it, the four of us, warm beneath one blanket flung across a comfy sofa in the lifeboat of our living room, bob with the waves of melodrama. How ironic their family split even on board, but along other lines. Living abroad had spoiled the girl. Annette was so pretentious she addressed her fellow Yanks in French. But Norman, with his normal name, might still be saved in Michigan. Well, that was Stanwyck's plan. And now he's sinking with shallow Clifton Webb, his Paris-besotted father, to a depth where such distinctions are all for naught. The ship's a symbol for society, we tell our children. Below decks, into the portholed maws of furnaces, bared torsoed men stoke coal, until their sweat runs black, while the iceberg slices through the hull, they're flooded in an instant. Above, in steerage, the cramped-in families of the kerchiefed, overexcitable poor race for the door, and as the water climbs, scramble upstairs where the Guggenheims and Astors, so well-bred they barely raise an eyebrow even for historic personal disasters, set down their hands of bridge, and don lifeboats like the latest fashion. Not enough life jackets like the latest fashion. Not enough lifeboats, noblesse oblige. Everyone is at once noble, and an instinctive revolution reshuffles the classes, women and children first. Down the Jacob's Ladder of rope, they struggle to the safety, shaky safety of going on living, while those left behind on the heavenly height of the tilting ship take solace in their perfectly rehearsed rendition of Nearer My God to Thee. Oh, you and I can laugh, 
but having turned off the set, we led the children upstairs into dry beds. Having turned off the set and led the children upstairs into dry beds, we sensed that hidden in the house, a fine crack, nothing spectacular, only a leak somewhere, is slowly widening to claim each of us in random order, and we start to rock in one another's arms. I've read this poem a lot of times, and this time I really did see that line. They strut down the, of rope, they, the, down Jacob's ladder of rope, they struggle to the shaky safety of going on living. It's a shaky safety, this going on living. Everybody's house has a leak in it. You don't know where it is and when the leak is going to start to give. Don't know when the house is going to be inundated. I don't actually think that's... Um, I, I just, I, I remember saying to one of my, my teachers in my early practice when I was quite overwhelmed with the impermanence of things. I said, it's so sad. He said, it's not sad, it's just true. And sad is a story that you tell about it. And at the time, I let that ride. But I've, I've, I'm not so sure it isn't sad. What it is is poignant. I've, I'll trade the word sad for poignant. Things do pass, and we don't live forever. And what's dear to us doesn't last, or we don't last to what's dear to us. But actually, that's the thing that we want to know. If we knew it, we would live so much better. Wouldn't really mortgage a day away to grudge or... some sort of distancing. We would take every opportunity, really, to let the people that we know know that we love them. It would be the solace that we could bring to ourselves and to them. And I think we love while we can, and then we comfort people in bereavement, or they comfort us. And all that comforting back and forth, I think, is what keeps us warm, because we're all going to need it somewhere sooner or later. I actually think that's why this afternoon when we were doing compassion practice, somebody said, you know, this was for me more real than metta practice. And for other people, it was not so easy. So it's different for everybody. But I actually think in some ways, it's all metta practice and it's all compassion practice. It's even not so easy sometimes for me to separate out joy practice from it, because even in the midst of grieving and sorrow and parting, I hadn't thought about this for a while. Uh, let me see how 
I want to tell it. My, my very dear friend Martha died a couple of years ago. And uh, I spent a lot of time with her in the final days of her life. And she was at the end in and out of being conscious. And sometimes when she talked, uh, she would start a sentence, but then it wouldn't make so much sense. It would trail off in some way. And at one point she said to me, uh, when she got confused in the middle of a sentence, she said, oh, I'm so sorry, I've been confused. I said, well, sweetheart, don't worry about that. You know, you're dying. You can, you're supposed to be a little bit confused. <laughs> she said, uh, I know, she said, but I'm afraid that I'm boring you. <laughs> and she looked over at me and I looked at her and suddenly the two of us laughed. Because it's ridiculous. You're dying to worry about boring somebody. I mean, uh, if you're going to worry, I mean, that's not, it's, it's such a, but the, I, you know, I carry that around with me. It's one of the things that I'm happy to tell you because in the moment that I tell you, I feel, uh, I feel badly about Martha's not here in my life alive anymore. But we had that moment that we shared, you know, and, Someone will stand with me sometime, and I'll probably say something equally silly, and I hope that we'll both laugh at it. So, you know, I think that mindfulness practice clearly is aimed at seeing how we create extra suffering by anything that arises in our mind that keeps us unaware of the truth of how things are. If we saw the truth of how things are, that they're precarious, that they're momentary, that they're fragile, that they're governed by karma, we would in any moment be using that moment to love and connect in. When I was a child, I... uh, I'm thinking of having told you about we've all of us missed every accident in the world up to today. I don't know about tomorrow, but up to today we're all here because we've missed every accident. We probably have been in accidents, but not in ones that took your life, I'm glad to say. When I was a child, um, uh, my family, being Jews, would say a certain particular blessing on the on a special occasions when you came to Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, or you came to Passover, or you came to Hanukkah, or you came around to say you graduated from high school, or you graduated from college, or you got married, or you came to a special occasion. They say a prayer that gives thanks for having been kept in life and sustained and been enabled to reach that special time. And I began, actually, as a teenager to think that we should all do that prayer every night when we come home, assuming the rest of our household made it home that day. Because on any day, it's a miracle that we all stayed alive and well and missed everything. I guess, I guess in that particular story, I've, uh, I'm, I'm aware myself of the antecedents of uh, uh, having pursued the path that I did. Because it was clear to me then that life is a very, it's a, it's a complicated thing. Very hard to really live fully awake in this life, knowing that every moment is a gift and it could have been different, but it's this. And remembering that the, the, 
the, the negotiating path through it is the path of love. It's so easy to fall, fall into antipathy or hostility. or It's convenient and it gets off energy. It's not going my way. That person, I don't like them. You know, there are lots of people in the world that are not likable, and I don't like everybody in the whole world. But what I'd like, what I really want, is for my mind to not do the err part of it, because that's painful to me. If I can remember that everybody is who they are, because they couldn't be different, it certainly doesn't mean I have to condone them. I have to approve of them. It doesn't mean that I can't go out and do everything to get other. If they're governing people that I can't go out and work very hard to get other people to be governing people, that I can't be opposed to um, how things are going, and that I can't take action. I think it means that I can be as active as I can, but without enmity in my mind, because it confuses my mind and I won't act as well as I could otherwise. And also because enmity in the mind causes pain to me. I have to remember who I'm mad at and why and keep the story up. I always mean to memorize the quote from Longfellow and I haven't quite done it. If we could see the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life such sorrow and suffering enough to disarm any hostility. What if we remembered that about people? Sorrow and suffering enough to disarm any hostility. There's a line, uh, it's not part of, uh, it's not part of those four phrases that most of us are reciting, but there's a beginning of a metta chant that begins, may I be free of enmity and danger. And I think that in the time of the Buddha, uh, at least uh, the, the folklore around the beginning of uh, metta practice, is that the Buddha taught it to uh, monks who were about to go out and be on their own in new circumstances where they didn't know the people or in jungles where they were on their own and there were all kinds of things to be frightened of. And it was a safety, it was an amulet, it was a protection. It was a protection prayer that would keep you safe. And when I first heard it years ago, I suppose I thought, uh, may I be free of enmity and the danger that would come if I had enemies that came after me. And I really think that it has the most significance to me now about may I be free of enmity in me because it would endanger my good heart. I couldn't see as clearly. I couldn't love as fully. If we could see clearly, we would love well. And that love would express itself in, in, the, in metta and compassion and empathic joy. In equanimity, things are what they are. And I think they'd all be indistinguishable from each other. I think they're all present in all moments of really loving. 
I think that's enough for tonight. Let's just sit for a minute together. May all beings be free from enmity. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you.